Well, Jesus transforms lives. That's what we talked about last week. I gave you my testimony. If you've never heard it uh, and you're interested, go check out last week. It's at the beginning. Uh, if you don't know who I am, by the way, my name is James Barr. I'm the youth pastor at Grace. I just realized some of you might know me, might not know me. Some of you do know me. Hopefully, that's a familiar name then. But Jesus also transforms families. And Jesus can transform through families. He uses his word. He uses the Holy Spirit to convict us. He uses the church and other people. But those other people can include our families. So I want to tell you a little bit about my family. I have a vague memory of my grandpa Barr holding me. But as best I can tell, it's actually a memory of the picture we have of him holding me. See, 1977, as I mentioned last week, was a big transformative year for me. Star Wars came out, my dad became a pastor, I became a a PK then, and I accepted Christ. But in the years before that, my family had some difficult moments, and it included, among them, both of my grandfathers passing away. So I have effectively grown grown up without grandfathers. My dad has shown me what it means to be a grandpa, because I don't know from personal experience. I also remember a story about my grandfather, Bar, Grandpa Barr, passed down to the family about him insisting that as their church was looking at some budget cuts, they not cut the missionary support of those that were out on the field. And he was insistent in that. That's part of what I know about his faith passed down to me through the family, that the church needed to find another way, and so they did. I don't know how they found that other way or what that meant, whether it was through committing to giving more or if it was cutting other parts of the budget, but I remember that story passed down from that side of the family. But that's about it for my grandfathers. But one of my many formative memories from early on and throughout life is of my grandma Barr, Anna. Anytime you woke up in grandma Barr's house, in Fullerton, California, and you walked out, no matter what time it was, if you were up early, she had gotten up first. And she was sitting in her chair or on the corner of the couch, couch by the lamp that was on, the only light in the house at the time, most likely. And she had gotten there around 4.30 in the morning, which to her was a normal time to wake up. And for those of you who agree with her, shame on you. It is not normal. But it can be good. But she was reading her Bible. And she was listening to J. Vernon McGee. And she was praying. And there was a decent chance. Oh, she was drinking coffee also, always coffee. But there was still a decent chance that she had started snoozing again. As she was a long member, long-standing member of the club of amazing grandmothers that wake up early to pray for their families and maybe fall back asleep a little bit in the meantime. If you join them, by the way, there's no biblical command not to fall asleep while you're praying, as Chet mentioned earlier. In fact, think of it this way. Have you ever had a grandkid or a kid who you're reading a story to and they fell asleep in your arms? Would you ever shout at them for that? And the answer is no. That was the perfect response to you reading to them. 
So the same can be true with God. Now, we do have Peter and the disciples falling asleep when they're supposed to be praying after Jesus specifically told them to pray. That would be a different thing. But if you have been feeling bad for decades about waking up early and falling asleep during your devotions, don't. You're right in the arms of the Father. Just like my grandma Barr, drinking her coffee, reading her Bible, memorizing J. Vernon McGee, and then destroying me and my dad and my brother-in-law, all pastors, in Bible trivia because of that constantly. We stopped playing Bible trivia. It was embarrassing. Grandma beat us all the time. My grandmas were the best. My great-grandma Shaddy sent me a birthday card every single year, and she lived back in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. We barely saw her, but she wanted to make, make sure that I knew she was thinking about me. My grandma Smith, we'd visit in Yukaipa, and I'd go see her dog Bandit, which apparently was ours first, but Bandit didn't work at our house. He did out there having a little more room, and I would constantly build a fort on her couch and snack on Doritos from her wooden, maybe resin, I'm not sure which bowls, but my memory is they're wooden, while drinking apple juice from a six-ounce can that was metal and had a peel tab and that teardrop hole, and I bet some of you remember what it is. There are no pictures online, so if you ever find a picture of that, I would love to see it to prove I'm remembering correctly. The internet has everything, but it doesn't have that. And then again, my gram that was my Grandma Smith's house and Grandma Barr. She was the jet skiing, surfing kind of grandma that also, also was the asking one of my friends why he was spending so much time in L.A. with me while she was looking at the cute little girl that was playing cards with us next to my girlfriend and my buddy and me and my grandma because grandmothers are amazing and awesome that way. Mark and Katie, by the way, started dating shortly after that awkward exchange with my grandma. That was the young man and the girl, and they eventually got married, and they live up in San Luis Obispo. Grandma was quite the matchmaker if she put you on the spot that way. It's the only time I ever remember that happening, but that was my grandma, Anna. I highly recommend, by the way, double dates with grandmas or grandparents as the fifth wheel. They're awesome. Grandparents that exemplify faith, like my grandmothers did, are even better. And I am not sure what Paul would think of my dating advice that I just gave you, although I think he'd agree, but I know he'd affirm that second statement. It's literally written into Scripture. 2 Timothy 1, 3 through 7. Uh, I think I might be going 1 through 7. I am. 1 through 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and self-control. When Paul says, I'm sure there, he isn't wondering 
He's saying, as best I as a human can tell, it's been passed on to you, just to make that pretty clear. In verse 2, though, he called Timothy my beloved child. But Timothy's not his son. Timothy's his son in the faith. Paul's a mentor to Timothy. That's pretty obvious, but it's significant. One of my first winter camps up at Hume with Grace, I had a wonderful, I won't tell you his name, but one of our wonderful um, volunteer staff, he was counseling, and a friend of mine actually from Biola had his youth group up there as well, and they all had t-shirts on that said Perry's Kids. The youth pastor's name was Perry. Uh, and the staff person, volunteer staff person, didn't, <laughs> didn't like that shirt. Said they're not his kids. They're somebody else's kids. And on the one hand, I agree with my volunteer staff member. I've always tried to remember that the kids I'm working with, unless they're my three, are not my kids. I have somebody else's precious cargo in tow with me, but I am the guardian that is present at the time. On the other hand, Paul just said, Perry's kid to Timothy. It's not out of line. If you're a mentor, always remember there is a parent of the, the, the kid or the student or the younger person you're working with. Don't ever try to usurp that. But it isn't wrong to say, this is my spiritual kid. This is somebody I've invested in and I value. It is not just another person to me. That's spiritual mentorship. We'll get to faith legacy in a minute. But these three words deal with the reality and the value of non-family examples of faith. Sometimes it's formal like Timothy and Paul. For me, I have a much bigger list than just my mom and my dad and my grandmas and any other family member that demonstrated their faith to me growing up. It's John Teagarden and Ken and Judy Pete and Gary Peterson, a missionary from Australia, and it's Rick Ernstrom who was a lot of things to me. I just talked with somebody about him this week. He was my swim coach. He was also an elder at my church and therefore my dad's boss. But he was also my parents' friend. And he also was Mark, my friend's dad. And many more and other people played parts in my life and my faith where they could look at me like Paul looking at Timothy and say, my beloved child. These are the amazing people in my life that bug me anytime I step out of line. They confront me because they care about me. They encourage me if, I see, if they see me down. This includes, today, even today, people I haven't bumped into in person for 20 years because of social media. And every once in a while, you'll get a response from somebody that says, are you doing all right? You seem a little angry or... You seem down. Or just happy birthday. By the way, for friends on Facebook, for some reason, I have totally missed happy birthdays for a long time. So belated happy birthday if I miss your birthday. I've been bad for like six months on that. But these are amazing people. You're probably thinking of some right now. Someone who taught you how to memorize scripture or which ones to memorize. Or somebody who was in a, a cabin counseling for you. And putting up with all the late night talking and telling you to be quiet a billion times, but also was there when you were struggling through that moment and they encouraged you with prayer or scripture. Sometimes it's formal. 
Other times, it's informal. We were just talking about this, that this week as my sermon came up. It's teens helping in the tech booth with our amazing tech team and the informal membership that takes place often by some adults that would say they're not mentors. That's not what they're doing back there, but they are. They don't necessarily consider themselves mentors, but they certainly are as they work with teens who volunteer from time to time back there or in any other area that you are working in the church where it isn't a formal relationship. You're not the one responsible for them, but you are bumping into them often enough that they are paying attention to you whether you realize it or not. Every week of my senior year in high school, a man named Ed Bulkley approached me. His mind had started to fade, something I missed at first but finally caught on to. And when I did, I stopped introducing myself every week as the youth pastor's son, and I simply met Ed for the first time again. He joyfully greeted every new teenager that showed up at Grace San Luis Obispo every single Sunday morning, and he was unfazed by my Mohawk stage. It wasn't rebellious, but it could have been. He wasn't phased by the whispering of the teens in the back row. He probably didn't hear it when we dropped the good and plenties and they kept rolling all the way to the church, front of the church during the sermon. Our parents certainly did. But to be honest, even though it was an informal relationship, that's probably why when I go meet skaters out in the parking lot, I never chase them away. I just invite them to church. Even that might be part of why I'm a youth pastor. They always stop skating at that point, which is handy if we don't want them to skate. I'm still waiting for some of them to come in, but they do from time to time. Little tip, you never have to get mad at them. Just invite them to join you and they will run. It's not the best response or the one we want, but it, it does work out that way. And grace, it's about being a smile at the doors instead of a frown. It's faithfully teaching kids Sunday school for a week on the rotation or for a lifetime in room 402. It's the CBS leaders on Wednesday mornings and Awana listeners on Wednesday nights. It's my youth staff pouring into our teens, and it's the barbecue crew's seasoned vets welcoming in a 20-something from Texas who's convinced it's only barbecue if you smother it in some kind of sauce. And it's being people like Paul who can say in verse 13, Follow the pattern of sound words you've heard from me. Or similarly, and even more clearly in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Having spiritual mentors is valuable. But of course, none have quite the same impact as family who follow Christ. Jesus can transform families, and he even transforms through families sometimes. Verse 3, as did my ancestors. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors. Now, who does this mean to Paul? It could be his faithful family tree, anticipating the Messiah who has now come, and like Paul, they're turning their life over to Christ. It's more likely, though, the Old Testament patriarchs, the actual forefathers of Jewish faith. That means it's Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and David and Ruth and Rahab. And if you're familiar with the Bible, that's an amazing family tree of David. 
It's probably the patriarchs. But then he turns to Timothy. In verse 5, Grandma Lois, I am reminded of your sincere faith, of which Paul is certain, remember, of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelled first in your grandmother Lois, because grandmothers are amazing, and grandmothers that follow Christ are even better, and Paul's recognizing that in Scripture. Grandmas, that is inerrant Scripture. Pause and think about that for a minute. Grandmas of faith are amazing legacies. God spoke that. Grandma Lois is one of the earliest followers of Christ. This is the only time we hear her mentioned. But she's one of the earliest followers of Christ. Or at least she's one of the first among the Ephesian church, which is where Timothy's at. And at the very least, she's the spiritual matriarch in her family. But the reality is probably all three of those. Grandma Lois was one of the first people to follow Christ. We don't know when. We just know that. She turned to follow Christ and then was followed by her daughter and was followed by her grandson. By the way, I'm going to mention a couple people who I haven't, I haven't asked their permission, so like my kids, I guess I owe you th- something from the snack bar. You can hit me up later on if you want to. We have our very own Grandma Lois at Grace. It's so cool to me. And I love to see three generations in our church, especially when it's a youth ministry parent and a youth ministry teen and a youth ministry soon-to-be preteen that's headed our way. I have the coolest job. That's what I mean when I say that. I get to see that when I'm preaching here. I get to see that in the parking lot. I get to see that if I'm sitting in the pew listening to Benji preach, but I look out and I see actual family trees, but also spiritual family trees at Grace, and we have so many of both. A few months ago, I think, it might have only been a few weeks ago, I was looking over here and I saw Becky and Noel and Margaret sitting together during worship, and that's a cool moment. It's amazing. And Paul is recognizing one of those moments in Scripture. It's generations bumping into each other in the aisles as we walk up to get communion. And I might have mentioned this before too, but a few months ago I saw people not walking quietly like we might expect as good Baptists that never talk to each other at the wrong time. Of course we do all the time. But there was... Good talking in the aisles as they were walking to communion. And at first I'm thinking, this is a serious moment. Stop it. It's a joyful moment. And it was wonderful talking. And it was exciting to see. Yes, know when to be serious, but also know when it's family going to dinner and feasting and celebrating Christ. Those are wonderful moments. It's a value of intergenerational faith and family legacy faith recorded in scripture and it's a beautiful moment and that's grandma lois's legacy not just to timothy but to us and then mama e i mentioned my grandparents and grandmas and, and parents above and i mentioned my dad last week my mom had a huge impact on my faith one of the stories from her is she was talking with a friend of mine in high school. She was a, my, my mom was a youth pastor's wife, not my friend. She was still in high school. She wasn't married. I'd be way too young for that. 
But my mom's talking to her, and they were talking about the importance of laundry and taking care of a family. And that that's as much obedience and faith as leading a Bible study sometimes. But my mom also led small groups. She showed me examples of teaching and ministry and life. And I'm very appreciative of my mom's legacy passed down to me. Obviously, my wife, too, getting to serve with her alongside me as a volunteer in our youth ministry, but as my wife and my number one support. Now that I've mentioned everybody, though, i got to mention a side. It will tie it in because I don't want my middle kid to be left out. I mentioned Nathan last week, and I showed a picture of Caitlin. But my son Isaac is at GCU. This is us at Canyon 49, a restaurant there. I dropped him off in August. So update on Isaac. He's doing well pursuing a psychology degree at Grand Canyon University. Please, please pray for him. Here's how it ties in, though. When I took Isaac to Grand Canyon for the first time, I reminded him that his dad and his grandpa and his, bro- his uncle, my brother-in-law, all have masters in ministry and Bible. See, I didn't know much about Grand Canyon at the time. We had checked it out. I'm still learning it as he proceeds through. But I didn't want him, even at a Christian school, especially one I didn't know as well, to bump into a professor that said something stupid and to think, well, I've never heard this before, but they must be right. So I was laying out our credentials. And I even explained to him, if you didn't know, the difference between a master's and a PhD is not that the PhD knows more about the area, it's that they know more about a very niche part of the area. So if it's in their PhD, they do know more than us. But if it's outside their PhD, we are just as qualified to have a conversation with them about any topic that has to do with Bible or whatever. I was staking our ground as a legacy of our faith of don't just bail on the family faith if you bump into a professor that says something dumb about the Bible. You might think that's a little overprotective, and I would encourage you to check out the reality of college campuses, especially, or including, not especially, but including even Christian campuses. I wanted him to know, if you hear something, call your dad. Let's talk about it before you deconstruct your faith completely and walk away from Christ. See, here's the thing. While Jesus can transform through families, we can't guarantee our kids' faith. That's not how it works. Just look at Scripture. Adam and Eve raised a murderer. I mean, they didn't set out to do that. But their son killed his brother. Jacob fought and deceived his family and was then fooled by his uncle who swapped out his bride. And then his son sold their brother into slavery and told him he died. That is not the family that we are dreaming of when we get married at church and anticipate a Christian family or a faith-filled family. And you might think about the, the errors of some of those parents. Well, then fine. Samuel was a great leader. I would vote for him for president. I hope you would too. And his sons were so bad, I know it was more complicated than just this, but this was part of it. It's spelled out in scripture. His sons were so bad, the nation begged for a king instead of God. And Father David had so many sons and so many wives that Father David had. I know I mixed that up. That was intentional. David was a philanderer. And his sons copied him. His son copied him.
copied him, and he had a messed up family because of it. Even the prodigal son story, though, with God as the father and a picture of grace on full display, a perfect and gracious father has one wayward son ashamedly cowering home and has one legalist son pouting on the porch outside, refusing, refusing to show, celebrate, or even enjoy grace to him. He's throwing a fit. And that's a parable about God's love for us, as well as a challenge not to be the legalist pouting on the back porch. And then it's about being the prodigal and returning to grace. We can't manufacture faith in our kids, but we can provide an example of it and set the course before them. Parents with kids in the house right now, even if they're adult kids, but they're still living at home, don't ever take the veggies off the plate. Don't ever take church, don't ever take youth ministry, don't ever take college off the plate. Don't be the one who does that. That's what I mean when I say don't take the veggies off the plate. You didn't do it when they grew up and they decided they didn't like carrots, but you made carrots, and you didn't start saying, you know what, let's not put carrots on their plate if we're serving that to the family that way. You just kept putting it on the plate. It was up to them to eat it and to partake in it, sure, because you can't quite put them on timeout for not eating their carrots when they're 19 years old. You can, actually, but, you know, you gotta, you got to be wise in that moment. But you don't have to remove them from the plate. Yes, they need to own their faith, but don't give them options any earlier than life demands or creates that moment. Not this summer that we just had, but the one before. I had three adult kids and even my sister-in-law living with us for the summer. And it's just a house rule. Nobody was fighting it particularly, but it's just a house rule. We go to church on Sunday mornings. And so everybody went to church on Sunday mornings. Are we late? All the time. Are we perfect in it? No. But we're not taking those veggies off the plate. Remove the question marks. This is one of the easiest ways. Instead of saying, if you have teens in the, in the house, especially if they're approaching junior high, preteens, getting to junior high, do you want to go to youth group tonight? That's the worst question in the world. I have little side. I have kids that don't want to go to Disneyland. You want to go to Disneyland? No. Seriously? What else are you going to do? I just want to bum around on my phone the whole time. Phones are an amazing thing, and they're awful at the same time. Take the question away. It's time for youth group. It's pretty simple. I had a kid, by the way, we, we just had a game night. If it's you, whichever kid, if you know it's you, that's okay. I, I'm just teasing you a little bit. I love you. I'm just teasing a little bit. We're playing laser tag. We've been playing laser tag for about 20 minutes. And they turn to me, same time another kid's saying, can we play this all night? They turn to me and they, get, and they say, can we do something else? The kids get bored. It's just what they do. Don't let them get away with it. Dude, you're playing laser tag. How are you bored with this? You were just having fun. But your brain paused for a moment. You thought, well, let's do something different. Their attention span is about this short because of how our world works now. So they literally get bored after 20 minutes of laser tag. I used to have, in this youth group, 1998, when I showed up, we would meet at Tunnel School and Park, and they'd play laser tag outside for three hours on their own, and they'd invite me to go, and I'd sit there. And this is how they'd play it. They'd divide into teams, and they'd both go on the defense for an hour and a half with nobody moving. 
and not get bored with it. I'm like, I got, I got a family and, a, and a, I mean, I got a wife and a son. I have a family. Could we get this game going? Like, it's fun, but I don't want to just sit behind a bush. True story. I don't want to just sit behind a bush while the neighbors are threatening to get, threatening to get their actual guns out. This is not my idea of enjoyment. And their response is, well, that would be awful. We like this game because they weren't bored. A lot's changed in those 24 years. A lot. So remove the question marks. If you value it, and you should value faith in church, just getting that on the table, right? Don't ask if they want to go. Just tell them when you're going. It doesn't have to be a fight every time. But if you remove the question mark, you'll be amazed how fast, well, not that they get ready because that's never a fast thing, but how fast the fight is over and they're just finally getting in the car. But if you ask them, now you're stuck. You want to go to church? No. Well, what do you do now? Now you're in a fight. It's a simple thing. Take the question mark off. If you get them to youth group, ask them better questions. Don't ask if they had a good time. They did. They're lying if they tell you they didn't. 99% of the time. There's always 1% that they really didn't have a good time. But also don't even ask who talked to you. Because they'll give you a bad answer. Instead ask, who did you talk to? Who did you go talk to? There's an era when we were in the great room for the youth room where we were struggling with some students to get them engaged. And so I told my, st my staff, ask them 20 questions. If you ask open-ended questions, not yes or no. Not even one-word questions if you can avoid it. Ask them open-ended questions. Same with your kids, your teens, your, your younger children. Ask open-ended questions. What did you all talk about tonight? Because you can't say yes, no, nothing, fine to that one. It doesn't work. And if they can't give you an answer, that means they weren't paying attention. Tell them to pay attention next time. But ask them better questions. I had a student, though, that knew this one time. And so she got in on it. She went up to another kid who was struggling to connect and asked 20 questions. And the kid gave them no response, gave her no response. She finally looked at me. And I, across the room, I just threw my hands up. I'm like, I, I don't know what else to do with that. You're literally a eyeball to eyeball, and they won't respond to you. So there is every once in a while 1%, but put it on your kid. Who did you go talk to? There is no moment in our youth ministry when somebody comes to the door and nobody talks to them, so don't accept nobody for an answer. Same with church. Who did you bump into? What did you learn from the sermon? How did you engage with another generation today. Ask better questions. It'll help. If they have a phone, instead of fighting over the phone, put a Bible app on it. Here you go. Here's your Bible. You can't make them click into it, but you can help make sure it's on their phone. And that tells them you want them to click into it. I do this one. Regularly text your family a verse or a passage. It doesn't be, have to be every day. I certainly don't do it every day. I forget all the time. But send them a passage. You want them to read the Bible? Help them out. They're on their phone if they have one. Text it to them. Here's a verse. It also does this, though. Here's a verse that I enjoyed or was challenged by or that I read in my devotions, in my time with God today. And by the way, it is never too late to start or restart until they move out. And then it changes. It's not too late still, but it changes. Here's a different one. 
Maybe you're struggling with the guilt of parenting and you feel like you've done a bad job. Don't ever forget they have their own agency no matter what age they are. Jesus can transform families, but individuals make real decisions where you need to, and you might need to, repent and apologize as needed. But you don't need guilt that somebody else is putting on you, whether it's Satan or our culture or even Christian culture. Enjoy grace. Speaking of that same Grandma Anna, it was weird to me as a 20-something to hear Grandma lament her parenting of my dad while he was in the room at a couple points, not because she had done anything wrong, but because culture had shifted and was telling her that she had done things wrong. Don't own guilt you don't need, and repent if you are guilty. It's that simple. Speaking of grace, kids, teens, adult kids, show it to your parents. This culture is telling you your parents have done everything wrong, and they haven't. Some, certainly. Your parents are not perfect. They are not God, but they haven't done everything wrong, especially if you're from a good home and even more a good Christian home. Show them grace. Follow that example and increase it where they've done things good and right. I'm not talking about abuse, by the way. That's a different thing, totally different thing. Be encouraged, by the way, and don't lose heart. There's a new study that just came out this month in uh, Christianity Today, and those graphs on there, I know it's kind of small, but it shows that millennials are returning post-COVID, and not just returning if they went to church before. It's almost doubled up that they're returning to church, period, whether they were going before or not. Millennials are, Gen Z is, uh, oh, no, Gen Z's not on the gra graph. Um, Gen X, sorry, that's mine. Gen X is. Boomers, step it up a little bit. You guys aren't quite back to where you were beforehand. But the generations that have been, we've heard this for two decades now, that are walking away from the church and they're not coming back, guess what lockdowns did to them? They're looking for God because they're looking for answers. Be encouraged. That's such a cool graph as a youth pastor. That's such a cool graph as a Christian. Be encouraged. Verse 7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power or timidity. Is another way it's put in some passages or some translations. But of power and love and self-control. We're not to be timid as Christians. You might have heard that before. And a good reminder post-social media or in a social media world, we're not just power either. Not timid, but not just power. Power and love and self-control too. If we are all power and no love, you need to remember 1 Corinthians 13, 1 and 2, and I'm sparing our drummer Gina by not bringing my symbol up and just beating the, the tar out of it like I like to do when I mention that passage with our students. Wrapping this all up, it'll take me a minute. <laughs> we have amazing legacies of faith from those amazing grandmas because Jesus even transforms families and transforms through families. If you have a grandma or a parent who has shown you their faith and done it pretty well, be thankful. 
We are better off, not better than other people, but we are better off for having enjoyed that family and that upbringing in church, unlike what you might hear in social media where it seems like it's the worst sin in the world to raise someone as a Christian. How dare you give them Christian standards? It's an amazing legacy. I'm blessed because of seeing my grandma read her Bible. I'm blessed because of having heard J. Vernon McGee. Whenever I see his commentaries, I always think of my grandma and her faith, and it is a good thing. It's a biblical thing. But legacy alone is not enough. You may have the best Christian parents and grandparents in the world that raised you, but you still need a personal and active faith. Nobody will go to eternity and be accepted because grandma knew Jesus. We only have eternity as our future if we knew Jesus. There's no earning our way to heaven and there's no legacy acceptance like there is at colleges. So you need to ask yourself, do you have a sincere faith like Grandma Lois and Mama Eunice and Timothy? Have you encountered Christ and been transformed by him? That's one. Value your legacy of faith if you don't have that, start a legacy of faith. Paul mentioned spiritual mentorship. This should be natural within the church. I'm the youth pastor, so another plug for youth ministry again. Put the veggies on the plate. Sunday school, we go through, through right now it's a sprint, but we go through scripture, Genesis to Revelation, so that they know and have a connection, just like they're getting in our kids' ministry, where they know the full story of the Bible and how it integrates together and that they know what we are talking about and what God says. Tuesday nights, worship and Bible and study in small groups. These are things that your students need. If we ever get our apologetic life going again, it's been on Sunday nights, get your kids involved. It's tackling questions and issues that they are struggling with. It's why so many are deconstructing their faith and by that, the, the route that sometimes leads them away from Christ. If it's deconstructing and bringing them to Christ, great. But if it's pulling it apart and they ditch Christ, we tackle those questions. Sign them up for Wildwood and the missions trip and winter camp, which, by the way, signups just started for that. It's February 2nd through 5th. It's at Hume Lake and it's Bolt Junior High and High School. Get your kids signed up. There was a study that came out, kind of hit this summer, but it really came out in 2017, that talked about lasting faith and how kids that went to camp tended to have their faith last longer. Also, by the way, kids whose parents are having faith discussions with them at home also tend to stick with faith. I'd encourage you, rejoice when you see spiritual mentors informally or formally connect with your kids. Be wise and aware. Make sure it's the right people. And also take advantage of the opportunities at Grace through kids ministry and Awana and youth group and college group to help your kids get involved and bump into mentors. As I mentioned last week, five adults that are not your family, bumping into them is how faith sticks by studies, according to studies. We have a spirit of power, but also love and self-control and never just power. It's that last verse that I tacked on there. I could have left it off, but I love that verse. That includes in our parenting. 
power, love, and self-control. You are not helpless as a parent. You're not helpless as a grandparent. You have a legacy that you're leaving for your kids. It's on them to embrace it. It's not all power. We can't force it. But we can set the course and give them an example to follow. And for centuries, many of us have a story about a grandma Lois and a mama Eunice or a grandpa and a dad who set the course of faith and we were blessed by it and it helped us follow Christ. One other thing before I pray and we turn to communion. We're gonna, because of this, we're gonna try something a little different. When we get to He is Worthy, it's one of the songs we'll sing in a little bit. Um, I need to explain it. It'll be on the screens to guide you and if we mess up, it's totally okay. But we're gonna sing it in kind of three stages. There'll be a prompt on the slide. And the first one is grandparents, when we come to it, stand and sing. Like Grandma Lois, stand and sing. If you're a grandparent here at Grace, stand and sing. The second one, parents and mentors. By the way, grandparents, because you're a grandparent, that means you're a parent, so you also get to stand on that one. Parents, but also mentors. Some of you don't have kids or don't have kids that are following Christ, but that does not mean that you're not a mentor or providing a legacy of faith for somebody else. This is Timothy and Paul now. So parents and mentors, second time you stand and sing. And then the third time, everyone stand and sing. And if you individually or we collectively mess up, that's okay. So if you realize you're standing when you're not supposed to be, if we have a 12-year-old standing when the grandparents are standing up and singing, everybody just enjoy it. 12-year-olds do funny things sometimes. But it's all right. Sometimes families try stuff and it doesn't work out smoothly the first time, but that's okay. When we get to he is worthy, that's how it's going to work. First time grandparents stand up, second time parents and mentors stand and sing, and then the third time everyone join in that, I think it's the chorus, but stand and sing. It'll be on the slide, so if that's confusing to you, that's all right. Let's pray and then we'll turn to communion. Lord, I thank you for the faith of my grandmas. I thank you for the faith of my grandfathers too even though I didn't get to see it as much. It certainly had an impact on my family and on me. Lord, I pray for the families in this room, whether it's the first in that legacy or the 50th in that legacy, that we would follow you closely. That we would see the example of family members and of adults in our life that love you and that we would follow in the, their footsteps Lord, where we see them fail because they're not perfect, that we would follow you all the more closely, celebrating their faith and the strengths we've seen while showing grace to their failures and their sins. But help us always, Lord, to follow you. Legacies are great, but it's our relationship with you that matters most, that we would know you and enjoy your grace and point others towards you, that they would know it too. In your name. Amen.